Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Okay, the book of Hebrews. It's called Hebrews because it's written to Jewish Christians. So they came at things from a different angle than many of us come at things. And they had in their history before they came to Christ this very important day on their religious calendar called the Day of Atonement. We've talked about it in previous studies here in the book of Hebrews. And the Day of Atonement was a special day where the priest would come out. They had all these different ceremonies. They would offer a sacrifice for the priest, but also for the whole nation. They knew that they had committed sins in the previous year. They knew that they needed God to cover their sin. And so they would come together, they would offer this sacrifice, and the priest would take the blood into the tabernacle or the temple, go into the inner room in that temple or tent, and offer in the Holy of Holies that blood of that sacrifice to the Lord. And everybody waited with bated breath for the priest to come out to announce to them that their sins for another year had been covered by God. And when he came out, it was a time of great celebration, a great joy. It was a time of rejoicing. And so here, what the author is dealing with are Christians who used to experience that. They used to have that annual day of celebration for what God was doing in covering their sin. But now, they were not partaking. And they would have friends and family who would say to them, why, do you, what you, why does what you have in Jesus, why is that any better than what we have in the Day of Atonement? He's invisible. He's not every year offering this sacrifice. Why is what you have better? And so today we're going to look at what the author would respond to that question with, to say this is what's better, the better sacrifice of Jesus. And I'm going to show you seven things that make Jesus' sacrifice the better sacrifice. And in doing this, really what we're doing is, if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to, at the end of each of those gospel accounts, come to the place where Jesus is physically sacrificed. You're gonna read the story of him being beaten and flogged and betrayed and go through illegal trials and pinned to the cross and die there for six hours. All the different statements that he made, the darkness on the land for three hours, and then eventually his body expiring as he gave up his spirit to God. You're going to read what they saw, what Jesus experienced outwardly. But the question is, what was happening inwardly? What was happening spiritually in that moment. And so many of the epistles, including this section of scripture that we're going to look at today, answers that question. All right, so let's look at the first three verses to see the first thing. I'm going to give you seven things today that Jesus's better sacrifice provide for us or that his sacrifice did. It says in verse 15, therefore, Jesus, or he, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now pause right there. What that means is that the blood of Jesus is the only blood that provides true and real forgiveness. Even people who committed sins under the old covenant and offered sacrifices by faith to God 
Ultimately, where their real eternal forgiveness came from is the blood of Jesus. Everybody gets saved the same way, by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So verse 16, it goes on to say, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now you guys understand how a will, a last will and testament works, right? There's somebody who's alive, they want to make a determination on what will happen with all of their belongings at their, the point of their death. And they're the ones who get to decide exactly how it's going to go down. So they make the will, but if they, let's say you are the one who's going to inherit everything that a relative is going to you know, leave behind once they die, if they write that will, they make that commitment, it isn't yours until the moment of their death. There has to be the author of the will, but it doesn't kick into effect until they actually perish, until they actually die. The author is making the same point or using that illustration to detail what Jesus did. There's a new covenant that God wants to give to humanity. It is only instituted by death. And here we're talking about the death of Jesus that kicked this new covenant into being a reality. But the first thing that I want you to see that Jesus' death provides is found there actually in verse 15. Notice it, it says, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So the first thing that we see is that Jesus' sacrifice activates the promised eternal inheritance. Now some of us might call this heaven, and the Bible does refer to it as heaven. Some of us might just say eternity or eternity with God. Some of us might speak of the everlasting kingdom that lasts forever and ever. Some of us might get more detailed with it and talk about a millennial reign of Christ followed by a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. But however we describe it, what he's talking about here is an eternal life with God that was not possible before the blood of Jesus, but has been instituted or given to those who believe in Jesus because of his blood. I think that all of humanity is longing for some sort of eternity. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, Solomon observed, he said, God has also put eternity into their hearts. There's this thing within humanity, whether they believe in Jesus or not, where I think we instinctively know that there is more to life than just what we can see. There's a sense within us that when we die, there is more to life than just the physical material realm. In fact, I even read a study recently where they'd done a very scientific poll of those who were atheists who confessed that they had no belief in any life after death, but even in asking a group of atheists, do you believe that there is life after death, privately, in the comfort of their own home, many of them answered in the affirmative. I do believe that there is something after this life, something that exists. And what the Bible announces to us is that Jesus Christ is the one who paves the way for us to be with God eternally and to be with him uh, forever. He came to bring us 
to become one of us so that he could bring us back to glory. This is what we saw in chapter two. I don't know if you remember it. I'm sure you remember all of my Bible studies verbatim, word by word. But when we were all the way back in chapter two, you might recall that we had a description of what God's intention was for us originally. That creation would be in subjection to humanity. But that we do not currently see creation in subjection to us because of our sin. So it says in Hebrews 2 verse 10 that Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, brought many sons to glory by making the foundation, the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So God allowed Jesus to suffer and die on the cross so that we could be brought back to the glory and even beyond the glory that God originally intended for us. And that's the glory that we're seeing here, the promised eternal inheritance in God. All right, let's move on into verse 18 and see the next thing that Jesus' sacrifice or blood unlocks for us. It says in verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. The first covenant that he's talking about, of course, is Moses, the tent, the Ten Commandments, the sacrificial system. Nod your head like, yeah, I got that. Okay. That's the first covenant. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and itself and all the people, saying, and this is from Exodus 24, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And here's a huge biblical statement. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So what the author says here is he, is he points back to that first covenant where after Moses came down from Mount Sinai and read the Ten Commandments to everybody and read the ceremonial law to everybody like Deuteronomy and he reads it to the people, he shares it with the people or Leviticus shares it with the people. As he shares all of this, he asks them, are, are you guys committed to this? Would you want to live in this? They said, yes, we want to live in it. So they built the tent and after building all of it, Moses then took blood and a few other instruments whereby he could appropriately cleanse the blood after it had been applied. Some water, uh, linen wool, and a hyssop branch which had detergent-like properties inside of it. And he went in and sprinkled everything, the people, the law, the ark, and the instruments in, inside of the tabernacle with blood. He says, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Doesn't that sound familiar to us? It's what Jesus said, or something similar, on the night that he was betrayed, when he took the cup of wine, handed it to his disciples, and said, this is the cup of my blood, the, the new covenant, my blood shed for you. And then he announces there in verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, in God's methodology, blood sacrifice is always involved in the dealing with of sin. Sin cannot be put away, it cannot be atoned for, it cannot be covered, and it cannot be forgiven unless blood is involved. And all of the blood and all of the Old Testament that was ever shed 
could never truly take away sins. You see, it was all emblematic. It was all foreshadowing the true blood that could actually take away sins, the blood of Jesus. You see, when Adam and Eve fell into their sin, they covered themselves with fig leaves. Then God showed up, spoke to them, pronounced the curse upon the world that we are living in, and then clothed them with animal skins. It was as if God was saying from the very beginning, sin is costly. It cost the life of these animals, but their blood was emblematic and foreshadowing the blood of Jesus. That's why Jesus, when he arrived, would say something like this. John 6, verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And when Jesus said things like that in John chapter 6, many people got squeamish, and many people departed from him at that moment. They couldn't handle that concept. But what Jesus was announcing wasn't an actual drinking of his blood, but partaking of it spiritually. To say, Lord, I believe that what you did on the cross was sufficient to cover, to take away, to eliminate my sin, and to separate it from me forever. You see, this is important. Many, many people will confess that human beings can sin. Some in our modern era are beginning to believe that they cannot. But most people will believe that human beings can sin. But we think that it's dealt with in a number of different ways. Some people think that time heals all sin or that over time all sin is dealt with. Or that by our good works we can deal with sin if we just sort of balance them out. Or through a decent life, I can overcome the sinful tendencies that are there within me. Or that even our own death will ultimately deal with our sin. But the Bible teaches something contrary to all of those concepts. It teaches that the only payment for sin is blood. And ultimately, it must be the blood of Jesus Christ. So the second thing I want you to see here is that it's Jesus' sacrifice that provides purifying forgiveness, purifying forgiveness. I just want you to imagine yourself pictured in the emblem that the, the author uses to describe this purifying effect of the blood. He talked about Moses taking all the furniture and fixtures of the tent and purifying them with blood. Now remember, the tent was just an emblem of the eternal reality. This is like God saying, in order for the people to be able to come in here, in order for us to be able to, in order for you to be able to use these things, in order for you to be able to approach me, to hang out with me, to spend time with me, blood is required. And for us, we have a full freedom, as the book of Hebrews has been teaching us, to come boldly into God's presence because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, what I'm trying to, what, what I'm hoping the book of Hebrews disabuses you of is the idea that it is your good performance that gets you an audience with God, or that it's your Christian maturity that gets you an audience with God. What I want you to see is that it is only the blood of Jesus that gets you an audience with God, but when it does, it gets you full audience with God. You are cleansed completely by the blood of Christ to enjoy our Heavenly Father. A word of advice that I'd give to you as you're thinking about how there is 
no forgiveness of sins except for, for and by the shedding of blood. I found this often helpful in my own life when temptation comes upon me. When it's there knocking at the door, one of the things that I try to remember is what price had to be paid if I were to enter into that sin at that moment. It's the blood of Jesus. It cost him greatly to be able to cleanse us from our sin. And I found out to be a great help during those moments of temptation to remember, to recall Jesus dying on the cross, his blood pouring from his body that I might have life. Now verse 23, let's read to the end of the chapter. And here's what I want you to do as I'm reading through this. I want you to notice how many times the word appear appears. All right, just check it out as we look through to the end of the chapter. It says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. It's another way of saying that the heavenly stuff, you know, if the, if the tent and tabernacle was a, a physical representation of heaven, God's throne room, and down here needed blood, then up there needed blood, but better blood, not bulls and goats, but the blood of Christ. For, verse 24, Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor, verse 25, was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, verse 28, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What I want you to see here, through looking at the word appear that's repeated throughout the text, are the three appearances of Jesus in this passage. He says, first, chronologically, Jesus appeared, verse 26, at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So when did that happen? That was in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he appeared to offer himself as a sacrifice to take away sin. But there's a second appearance of Jesus in the passage. It's in verse 24. He went into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And then there's a third appearance mentioned of Jesus, the second coming to us, because it's the second time we see him, where it says in verse 28, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, I want you to see what the author is doing right here when he talks about Jesus. He talks about Jesus doing three things, appearing to offer a sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, then going into heaven and appearing before the Father and offering his blood there to prepare eternity for us. And then in the future, another time where Jesus appears back on earth again, not, as the author says, 
to deal with sin. He's already done that in his first coming, but to save those who've believed in him, those who are looking for his appearing, to bring in the fullness of his kingdom, all right? Now, what the author's doing is really cool. He's, remember, in the back of his mind, thinking about the Day of Atonement. What would the high priest do every year? He would come out and appear before the people of Israel and offer a sacrifice. He'd take the blood from that sacrifice into the tent, into the Holy of Holies, which was representative of God's throne room, and he would appear before God and offer that blood. And then he would leave, and everybody outside was waiting. Like, is he going to come back? Is he going to make it? Was the blood sufficient? And then he'd come back out, and he would appear to them a second time, and everybody would celebrate and rejoice because the high priest had come. What the author is letting us know is that all of that was a picture of what Jesus would ultimately and finally and completely do. He would come to offer a sacrifice of his own body for our sin. He would go to God and appear before him where he is today, living and sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. But the promise is sure and secure that he will appear again to us a second time in order to uh, save us from this world and uh, brokenness that we are living in. So the third thing I wanted you to see is that Jesus' sacrifice anticipates his next appearance. Jesus' sacrifice anticipates his next appearance. I hope you know this, Christian. Jesus Christ is coming again. He came once. I'm glad some of you are marginally excited about that. Because the text says, that he's going to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, I don't want to present this like it's some kind of litmus test where Jesus is going to return to earth to establish his forever kingdom, and he's going to have some kind of like little meter on our hearts trying to see, are you waiting for me? Are you eagerly waiting for me? I don't think that that's what the text is teaching. The author seems to be saying that he can't imagine a Christian who's watched Jesus leave in wait in heaven, he can't imagine a Christian not looking forward to the day when Jesus would return. Now obviously it'd be very easy for us to get all beat up about this concept because there are so many things that we anticipate with greater fervor than we anticipate the second coming of Christ. I mean, we anticipate spring training right now. I'm anticipating opening day for Major League Baseball. You anticipate getting a new job. You anticipate graduation. You get engaged. You anticipate the day that you're going to be married. There are so many different things in life that we look forward to, some of them serious, some of them less than serious, but we anticipate so many things. But do we anticipate the coming of Christ? Here he says, eagerly waiting for him. If you, if you aren't looking forward to the second coming of Christ, I have, a, I have a way for you to easily do this. Every time that you read or see or hear, whether it's in your own life personally or in the world that we live in, of something terrible, think about how Jesus is going to one day come 
and set up a kingdom that is without any of that terribleness. And every single moment, it will be a way for you to eagerly wait for the return of Jesus. So man, just a cool picture to me. Those worshipers outside the tent waiting for the high priest to come out. We are waiting for our great high priest to return for us. For verse one of chapter 10, let's, let's read the first 18 verses of chapter 10. It says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. They just had to keep going, Day of Atonement, every year. They put it on the calendar. For it is impossible, verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He uses a few words in those first four verses. It can never, verse one, make someone perfect, and it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, verse four, to take away sins. And we'll deal with that concept in a moment, but let's read on in verse five. It says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Jesus speaking through Psalm 40, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, verse 8, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Now, real simply, what is happening here is that the author goes back to Psalm 40 where he finds a quotation that he ascribes to Jesus. He says, you know, it's like Jesus was saying this to his father. And what he's saying to the father is, Father, you didn't really want sacrifices of offerings, these burnt offerings, these guilt offerings. You wanted something different. A body, he says, you have prepared for me. You see, there are places in the Old Testament where God would rebuke the people of Israel for their sacrifices. And when he did so, he would say, it's not that I want your sacrifices, I want your obedience. I want you to be a people who give mercy, who walk humbly with your God. And in those places, what God was saying was, I don't want your dead religiosity. Though I gave you the sacrificial system whereby to worship me, you're going through it in a rote kind of way. I don't like dead religiosity. I want you to be obedient to me. I want you to walk with me. I want you to be people who live for me here on earth. But when Jesus quotes this or says this from Psalm 40, that's not what is being talked about. What's happening is, that the son is saying to the father, look, you set up that whole sacrificial system. It came from you, but that's not the body that you truly wanted. He says, no, a body you prepared for me, Jesus said. In other words, Jesus came with the consciousness that it was not actually the blood of bulls and goats that the father needed, that the Trinity wanted, but that it was the blood of the son. That's why he says, 
to the Father, I've come to do your will. This is what Jesus testified of over and over again. That when he came, he was doing that which God had designed and that which God had desired. So number four, Jesus' sacrifice was according to his Father's will. Now by saying this, this does not mean that the Son was somehow subjected unwillingly, unwillingly to the plan of the Father. No, the entire Trinity, the triunity of God, cannot be broken up in that kind of way. This was the will of God. Jesus himself desiring to become flesh, dwell among us, and offer his body for us. This was the plan, the determination of God. Did you know this? Did you know that from the foundation of the world, it says in Revelation 13, verse 8, from the creation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. In other words, it wasn't that after thousands of years of human history, the Trinity conferred amongst himself and said, what will we do with the problem of man's sin? No, at the very foundation of the heavens and the earth, it was known within the Godhead that Christ would be slain. The lamb who was slain from the foundation, the creation of the world. Jesus submitted himself to this plan. In the garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. All things are possible for you, yet not what I will, but what you will. There's a verse in Isaiah 53, verse 10, detailing the cross of Christ, prophesying about it and a small little phrase embedded inside of it that says, Isaiah 53, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus was submitting to the eternal plan of God when he came to offer himself as a sacrifice for us. Now let's read on in the passage in verse 10 and see the next thing that we receive or that is true from this sacrifice of Christ. It says, and by that will, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now the author over and over again has contrasted the sacrifice of Jesus with the sacrifice that happened on the Day of Atonement. Here he says that the priests, well, they had to keep standing because their work was never finished. But Jesus, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he sat down because his work was accomplished. His sacrifice was sufficient. They were sacrificing daily, but Jesus, he offered a sacrifice that covered for all time. Their sacrifice, it says, could never take away sins, but Jesus, he offered a sacrifice once, single sacrifice for our sin. You see, the Day of Atonement, all it could do, all that sacrificial system could do was cover the sins of the people. Even, even the word atonement is the word kofar in Hebrew. It means to cover. But Jesus does more than cover our sins. He takes away our sins it tells us here in verse 11 he takes away our sins so jesus's sacrifice number five it takes away our sins now i don't know if i'm talking to any sinners here today but the blood of jesus that's what we need you see 
Humanity is really good at trying to cover sins. To make excuses. To pretend that they don't exist. To run from them. To ignore them. But in the bottom of our hearts, we know that our sin has not truly been taken away. But the blood of Jesus Christ, when you believe in him, your sin is actually removed from you, separated from you. The righteousness of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus in the sight of God is deposited into your account. When the Father sees you, he doesn't see a a bag of sins and imperfections and errors. No, he has, through the blood of his Son, allowed your sin to be taken away from you, separated from you as far as the east is from the west. So when he sees a believer, he is seeing the righteousness of his only begotten Son. He's, this is radical to say, but he sees you as a co-heir with his only begotten son, the Bible teaches us, in places like Romans chapter 8. So when he looks at you, he's seeing someone that has the same righteousness of his own son. That is radical. That is incredible grace that we could never earn. But it happens because Jesus' sacrifice takes away our sin. Now let's read verse 13 together to look at the sixth thing that Jesus' sacrifice does. Notice it. It says, waiting. This is Jesus. He's waiting. Waiting from that time, the time of his sacrifice, until his enemies should be made a footstool to his feet. Now, this just sounds awesome. Even if you don't use the word footstool in your everyday vernacular, you know, the, the idea that here's Jesus. What's he waiting for? Well, he's sitting on his throne and he's waiting for the day when all of his enemies will be made into his footstool. You know, just the place that his feet, like, I just need to kick my feet up for a little bit. I'm going to put my feet up right on Satan, you know, or whatever, however you want to envision this. He is waiting, though, for that day when his enemies will be made his footstool. This is a quotation from Psalm 110, which perhaps by now you've noticed is the author to the Hebrews favorite psalm because he's quoted from it quite often but he makes mention jesus is waiting for the day when his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet the sixth thing i wanted you to see is that jesus's sacrifice it's the thing that ends all conflict it's ultimately jesus's sacrifice that ends all conflict you see the bible teaches that there are enemies against christ which are also enemies against humanity. One enemy is an evil being that the Bible refers to as Satan. It says in Hebrews 2, verse 14, that Jesus came to destroy the devil. But another enemy that's against the Lord and against humanity are, according to Colossians 2, verse 15, rulers and authorities that Jesus put to open shame on the cross. Just this world system that's in the air that is against humanity, oppressing humanity, deceiving humanity, leading humanity astray. 
And there's another enemy that we have, and it's the enemy called death. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's unnatural to us. We call it natural, but we weren't created to die. It hurts. It's painful. We don't understand it. It causes us such grief. And Jesus' death on the cross put an end to all of that, but of course, we're still waiting for the full revelation of that victory. Now, I think all of humanity wants this. We live in an age where big portions of the world believe that that kind of utopia that I just described, where death is vanquished, lies are no longer leading human beings astray, that a spiritual force that is hurting humanity, there are many people that believe that the way to get to that kind of utopia is actually by getting rid of things like the Bible, getting rid of the message of the cross of Christ, getting rid of the idea or even the concept of sin. And people are envisioning this beautiful future that is void of any of this. But what the Bible teaches us over and over and over again is that you can take out Christ, you could take out the word sin, you could take it all out and try to delete it, try to remove it from a culture, but you know what you're left with in that culture? Human beings who, whether they want to call it sin or not, still have sin within their heart, still live in a broken and fallen place, and will still hurt each other till the bitter end. But it's only Jesus, by his blood, that will bring us into that utopia-like moment for those who believe in him, where all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And we are waiting for that day, amen? The day when, at the name of Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, every knee will bow. All right, let's close by reading verse 14 to verse 18. Uh, this is really a little bit of just recap because he's already talked about the new covenant at length and we've studied it at length. So let's just read through these last five verses and I'll point out to you two big features of the new covenant that Jesus' sacrifice brought in. It says in verse 14, for by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is an Old Testament quote, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their hands. This is one major feature of the new covenant, inward transformation. We're changed from the inside out now. Then he adds, verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That alludes to the radical forgiveness of sins that is also part of this new covenant where there verse 18 is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin so the seventh and final thing i wanted you to see is that jesus's sacrifice inaugurated as i've been saying today and in previous weeks the new covenant that we are today living in now in a sense we have just finished the author to the hebrews argument about Jesus. He came onto the scene saying Jesus came and brought a better salvation, brought our great salvation, and here it is. Here's what he 
has done for us. And in a sense, he's now finished with that argument. But you may have noticed that the book of Hebrews does not end at chapter 10, verse 18, but it goes on through chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13. So what is coming? Well, here's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks. The author has told us now what Jesus has done. He's told us what Jesus is doing. He's told us that he is the anchor for our souls who's brought us into a new covenant relationship with God and that we have full and unfettered access to our Father in heaven to get grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. He's shared with us all of these incredible realities about Jesus's today ministry. So what's he going to say? Well, he's going to teach us what to do with all that truth. He's going to teach us how to apply all that truth. What he's going to teach us is the incredible kind of life that can be lived if a person really internalizes the truth that we've discovered up to this point. And secondly, he's going to show us the incredible kind of community that a group of people who believe these things can live out. That's where he's going to go in chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13. And so I hope that over the next few weeks, the Lord really speaks to your heart because I think that these next few chapters are going to be radically important for each one of us individually, but also for our whole church collectively. Because we're going to receive a lot of instruction in these next few chapters on how to actually live out this new community that Christ has won and that he's interceding for right now from the right hand of the Father. You see, you might be tempted to think that your salvation, that your Christianity is just a personal experience, and it is a personal experience. You can personally go to God and spend time with him in his presence, but it's also a community experience, and we're going to be reading and studying about that in the next few chapters. So let me pray for you this morning that this sacrifice of Christ would embed itself deep within your heart. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.